Hello again, Booth One listeners. You've come to the right place for the art of lively conversation. Centering on the arts and popular culture, this is Gary Zabinski, your host, coming to you as always from our palatial studios in downtown Evanston, Illinois, where the films 16 Candles and Home Alone were shot. And did you know this, Rachel, that in The Princess Bride, according to the Internet Movie Database, Peter Falk and the son, and he's reading him the story, they say they live in Evanston in the movie. Oh, that's right. Fred Savage, I remember. Exactly. The story's author, William Goldman, was born in Chicago. He grew up in Highland Park, which is just a couple of miles uh, away uh, from Evanston up here on the North Shore. Well, I'm tickled pink about my guest in the booth today. Rachel Rockwell is a renowned actress, dancer, director, and choreographer here in Chicago, New York, and around the country. Winner of multiple Joseph Jefferson Awards. You know, you can't be on booth one unless you've won at least one Jeff Award. <laughs> that's, that's kind of our little criteria, preferably several. And a master of the musical genre, previous booth one guest Rick Boynton, the uh, creative producer at Chicago Shakespeare, has said of Miss Rockwell, she is such a signature talent and brings an incredible skill set to her understanding, approach, and direction of shows. She is one of my favorite directors and collaborators, and I adore her as an artist and as my dear friend. Well, welcome to the booth, Rachel. Thank you so much. Great to have you here. You know, you're our third extraordinarily talented guest who have been raised in Indiana. <laughs> That's apropos absolutely nothing, but do you know Becky Menzi, the, oh, yeah. uh, the well-known uh, cabaret Very artist? Well, yeah. And Danny Smith, singer, oh, yes. dancer, actress. Fabulous actress, yes, my love. Then you directed Danny in a recent production of Mamma Mia. Am I correct about that? At the Marriott Theater. And she was so great. What a pleasure to work with her. She's just such a a wonderful leading lady, both on stage and off. We had a wonderful interview with her on, on air. She was totally impressive and I was in awe of her talent. So what's in the water in Indiana that brings out all of this wonderful talent? You were raised in around Evansville, am I yes, correct actually, about that? Boonville, Indiana, where Lincoln learned the law according to the plaque on our town when you drive into it. There's a plaque that says yes, Lincoln learned the law Lincoln here. Learned the law. Yes. Yes, I think there are several towns in Indiana that say that, but <laughs> it's one of our claims to fame. And I did go to the University of Evansville, and I think that is a big component of my success because it's a wonderful theater program helmed by John David Lutz. And so many of my classmates are making their, pursuing their careers and making their living in this business. And I think it's due to the great training that we had there. Now, your brother, Jeremy Spencer, he is a drummer for the heavy metal band Five Finger Death Punch. Yes. Is that right? Yes, he is. See, there's more talent coming out of Indiana. <laughs> this, is, uh, this band is named after the uh, Five Fingers of Death movie, mm-hmm. uh, a kung fu film, which uh, Quentin Tarantino was uh, sort of made a little bit more famous in Kill Bill mm-hmm. by mentioning it. Um, what's it like having a, a, a thrash metal rocker as a brother? He's got a lot of tattoos, doesn't he? He does, yes. He's been on the cover of many uh, an ink magazine. It's really fun. I mean, looking at me and my mom and dad at his concerts, and we look like, you know, soccer parents from middle... No tattoos? America. No. not Well, no, actually, I'm the only person in my family that doesn't have a tattoo. Everybody wow. has one, except me. <laughs> uh, noticeable ones, or are they... No, they're, they're a little more discreet than my brother. I see. Although my mom's is on her, uh, her upper arm, so in the summer, she's sporting it pretty proudly. But my son now is uh, 12, and he's now getting into Uncle Jabo's music in earnest. So <laughs> he's called Uncle Jabo. Yeah, yeah. We call him Jabo. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he's getting into it in earnest. I'm right. sorry, how old is your son again? He is uh, 12 years old, just turned 12, 12. years old. 12. Well, that's, yeah, that's thrash rock time. Oh, yeah. And he is one of the two John Websters in Shakespeare in Love. I think you saw him on opening night. We did go to Shakespeare in Love on opening night. We're going to talk about that in some great length in just a few moments. And he was the small boy, John Webster, who, of course, grows up to be a, <laughs> very, King of a fairly England. well-known <laughs> author of the Elizabethan era. Yeah. Out of out of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. So let's talk about Shakespeare in Love. We did see it last week on opening night. This, of course, is a stage adaptation, not a musical, of the Academy Award-winning film starring Joseph Fiennes mm-hmm. and written by 
co-written by Tom Stoppard. There's our Stoppard connection. We had uh, Charlie Newell on the show last time, and we were talking about The Hard Problem, the newest Stoppard play that he directed. This is not a brand new show. It's been done in a couple of places before. Stratford, I believe, did it Uh as well. Uh, Talk to us about your approach in directing this show and how the stage version changes from the film a little bit. Well, the lovely thing is that it's very faithful to the film script. And so all the things that people really loved about the film are present in this adaptation. But they've expanded the characters of Kit Marlowe, Christopher Marlowe, as a kind of mentor, guide, friend to Will Shakespeare as he is suffering writer's block. Yeah. And I like to think of this, I, I loved the film Amadeus when it came out. I just loved it. And I, it was my, fir- my first exposure to historical fiction that could paint such a vivid picture and make you want to believe that it had happened. And I feel that this is very successful in a similar way. Some people are very upset that it humanizes William Shakespeare and that takes him from kind of this godlike status that we have bestowed upon him and and humanizes him. I actually think it's quite great and really charming that every artist struggles, every artist has flaws. and, And to see someone go from kind of a petulant, egotistical person who was writing for their own gains to someone who understood that they were writing for the world and writing for something that was bigger than themselves, I think is very noble and really stage worthy and interesting. And it it gives us a very, very strong female protagonist who is willing to risk everything to get to be an actor as a woman in this business. I can tell you it isn't always um, fair and equitable. We, luckily, we don't, it's not that severe, but you got to put in the extra time to, yeah. to be successful in this business if you're a woman and especially if you're a working mom. So yeah. I, I really, I love, I love how strong Viola, the protagonist, is. But I, I do think that it is a very successful work of historical fiction that really ties together all of these people that were alive and working with Shakespeare, Henslow and Ned Allen and Burbage. And it's, it's just got a little something for everyone in it. It does. I, I love this film. I know it's been criticized as maybe not worthy of winning an Oscar by some Oscar scholars, but I totally disagree. I think it's an absolutely beautiful film and a fantastic story. Even if it weren't about Shakespeare, it would be a wonderful, wonderful love story. As you said, people are very familiar with this film, and people who go to Chicago Shakespeare Theater, where you have directed this and it's been produced, are very familiar with every little reference to Shakespeare, and they'll catch every little nuance. There were people who were laughing at things that even went over my head. I'm like, I I know that means something, but I can't quite place it. Did you have concerns about meeting the expectations of the audience? Well, I think you always hope that you do, but I, I believe strongly that if the relationship between Will and Viola feels genuine, then the, uh, the script is strong enough that the audience is going to go along with us. And Nick Rayberger and Kate McGonigal, who play Will and Viola, are, have such amazing chemistry together, and they're so likable that I had no concerns about that. And our cast is filled with a lot of people who are very new to Chicago Shakespeare, and then you've got some wonderful actors who've worked there for many years, like Larry Yando and Ron Raines. And so we've, we've, we've got a, a, an incredibly smart, talented, capable company who bring a lot of heart to this story. And I really think that's the, the key, is, is making the audience feel for these characters. And also seeing people being transformed by the power of art is is a very, very powerful thing to witness as an audience, to see the producer Fenneman, who believes that art is only to be profited by, become one of the greatest appreciators of the art form and the work, and to see Mr. Wabash, who has a profound stutter, become the most eloquent of all because of the power of the words that, and the importance of the words that they get the privilege of saying. Yeah, that's really. one of the most moving Isn't moments it? in the show in, and in the film as yes. well. And I was waiting with bated breath for that. And you staged it just beautifully. And he did it so wonderfully. I mean, he's there's so just a simple quality Scott about Danielson it. Scott Danielson plays Mr. Wabash, and he's so 
genuine and you root for him so hard that it's it's just a a, a huge moment of triumph. Yeah, a lovely performance. It's a great ensemble and it's a wonderful show. It's a wonderful show for people of all ages, I would mm-hmm. say. Great family entertainment. Remind me how long it runs now. I believe we go until June the 11th. So there's still many weeks in order to to get there and see it. You know, it's a, it's kind of a brainy yet farcical mashup not unlike a Tom Stoppard play. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of intellectual arguments and positions taken, especially in terms of literature and the depth of knowledge of Shakespeare's literature, yet there's, again, this almost slapstick-like quality. Did you consciously work to meld those two so that it was never kind of one or the other too much? Well, to me, it all boils down to intention. If you're playing the the drama of the intention, especially in the play within the play, where things are going horrifically amiss, and you never play it for comedy, but only for the seriousness of the the obstacles that are being that are befalling the company, mm-hmm. then I think it balances itself out. And and as I said, we have a truthful company who seems to walk that line very, very well. And I think it's easy for this show to tip too far in one direction. So we, we have a firm hand on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I would say so. You you balanced it just beautifully, I, I thought. Now, you started your performing life as a dancer. I did. And you went to uh, Champaign, um, Illinois, to study dance? To the National Academy of Arts, which is unfortunately no longer there. Right. Yeah, it was an amazing school, and we had teachers from the Royal Ballet and from all of the major modern companies. And I was taught jazz by Buzz Miller, who's one of the original Steam Heat dancers from from Pajama Game. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and here I am. I'm 12 years old, and here's Buzz with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and the ash would be like three inches long, and it would never fall because that would be uncool. But that would he, you be, know, he would, he, that would be very unfossy like. Very unfossy like. <laughs> and he mentored me because I was one of the few bunheads at that time that really seemed to understand kind of musical theater jazz. And so he spent a lot of extra time with me. And I I'm feel very privileged to have had that kind of one-on-one education from such a legend. Oh, sorry, what's a bunhead? Oh, a ballerina. (laughs) Oh, I see. (laughs) I see. So you pursued your career as a dancer. Mm -hmm. I know that you were involved with the uh, at least national tour of Mamma Mia. Did Mm -hmm. you appear in that uh, in New York as well? I did. I made my Broadway debut in that show and found out that I was going to have my son on the day of my Broadway debut. Oh, my. It was a big day. (laughs) It was a really big day. I bet you remember that date very I, I well. I do. I do. Luckily, I'd done the show about 400 times already, so it was. I was not entirely focused on that element of my day, more so the baby part, which was very exciting. Right. And then you went on to be equity dance captain of, of the show I as actually, well. Yeah, I actually started out as the dance captain on that show. Hmm. So I started out with the, nation, the second national tour as their dance captain, and I'm still really good friends with almost everybody that went through that company. It was a really lovely company. A half of them are married and there are so many Mamma Mia babies. And it was a really lovely experience. And I learned a lot about maintaining a show and directing a show during that time. I had the great privilege of stage managing a number of shows during the early part of my career, uh, including being on the road with uh, the national tour Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a wonderful dance captain, several wonderful dance captains. So I know what's involved in keeping a show tight, clean, and in the proper, I guess, the proper shape that the artistic staff wanted. Tell us a little bit about what a dance captain does for our listeners who don't really know. Well, you put all of the new people into the show. So you teach anybody who's coming in to what you call a track. Usually in a show of that size, there are tracks. That's everything that a a specific person does throughout the show. And then you watch the show if you're not on, because usually the dance captain is also a swing, which means that I covered every single female ensemble member in the show and was frequently on, sometimes for two of them, at a time if we were down people. Yeah, right. <laughs> then you call that a split track. Yes, yes, you, you have do. have to make up really quickly. I think I had something like 75 out 
scenarios for Mamma Mia by the time I left. And I'd put in dozens and dozens of people. And then on the day-to-day level, you maintain the integrity of the show. And so if people are not on their numbers and the picture's wrong, or if they're under-energized or over-energized, you, you have to keep everything really tight. And I think your other job is to inspire people to want to self um, monitor. You know, you want you have to inspire them to want to do their best work every day. And in a long running show, that can become a challenge. You yeah, know? for sure. But encouraging them and inspiring them to do their best work every day, I think, is the mark of a really, really good dance captain. And I learned that from a dance captain named Susan Burke, Sue Burke on How Princess Showboat. You know, she was one of those people that uh, everybody respected and, and would really do their utmost best work for her every day. And I thought that's the kind of dance captain that I want to be is somebody that inspires people to do it when nobody's watching. (laughs) Right. Well, there are always people watching, but it's, you know, when nobody's there giving you notes, you should want to do it anyway. So you took that experience and your earlier experiences of maybe directing a little bit when you were younger and you've fostered a director choreographer career for yourself. Tell us about being a director and a choreographer And what kind of unique challenges that brings? There are very famous director choreographers, of course, Michael Bennett, Tommy Toon, Susan Stroman. I've directed shows before, and it's a monumental task. I can't imagine also having to do the dance numbers. What is your approach to that? Well, from, uh, to me, it's actually easier if I do both because then the vision is coming from one place and you don't have to kind of uh, meld what you're seeing with what someone else is seeing. And it, it, for me, it's just, it's just easier. But I do surround myself with really good associates and assistants because it's important to have another perspective on your work. I think it can get very insular when you're doing it all and you need you need people to call you out, keep you on track, challenge you and support you so you can turn to somebody and go, are we going in the right place? And they go, yeah, I think we are. Oh no, I think we need to abandon and we need to look at something else. But to me, I mean, I always look at the play in terms of physicality because I'm a dancer. So it, it, to me, it's, it's being able to organize the physical world and then you can specify the emotional things that come within that world. Once you get the emotional world specified or the physical world specified, then you can go back in and deal with the emotional world. So we talked about Shakespeare and Love not being a musical, except you brought a lot of musical elements to it. I mean, music was a great part of Elizabethan theater anyway, Mm -hmm. part of the spectacle that goes on. There's songs that pop up in Shakespeare and Mm -hmm. dances that happen that may not necessarily be in the script. And, And you beautifully brought all of those things together. Was the cast very cooperative in coming to the table with the enthusiasm to dance and sing as much as they did? Every day. Nobody said no, ever. And that's why we were able to get so much good work done. Because it was just, well, sure, let's try that. And then, you know, some sometimes it yielded great things, and sometimes I'd go, yeah, no, we, we gave that a shot. <laughs> and let's, <laughs> let's move on. But no, they were great. And the script is very much the film script it's very similar and it and and all those scenes where you would cut away and transition you don't have that ability so it it also feels very much like a musical which i'm very comfortable with transitions are one of my favorite things to do and so we tried to figure out ways to keep the pace of this thing moving in a cinematic kind of way so that we were, I mean, some of the scenes, most of the scenes are two and three pages long. So they're really fast. Yeah. Sometimes they're a page long. If you get a six page long scene, you're like, wow, we could go to the movies and come back. You know, it's, it, those, those were, those felt epic by comparison. Some of the rehearsal scenes, especially when you have, 12, 13, 14 guys, big guys on stage at once. You're like, how we got to keep this moving so that everybody can see and so that we know where to look. And those those scenes were, I think, the most challenging mm. in the play. And you've got a lot of great big personalities. And so it's, you know, keeping it moving and, and making sure that the story is getting told. Um, yeah. Yeah. You do three or four or more shows a year these days, do you not? I usually do probably six or more. Wow. Yeah, I think my busiest year was 10. That I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's not good for your no. your mental health, is no, it? No, it's not. It was, or it physical. Was, it was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. Those years were a lot. But, you know, when you're building a career, 
you got to take the work when it comes. Sure. And especially because I, I rarely get offered things that I'm like, there, it's always like something that would be on the top of your short list, which I don't have because I don't have time to have a short list. I'm too busy to have a short list. You know, I've checked most of those boxes. Well, for being so busy, here's something I'd want to ask you. Our, our friend and longtime stage manager at Chicago Shakespeare, Deb Acker, mm-hmm. has said to us that you are the most prepared director that she's ever worked with, or at least one of the most prepared. And as a stage manager, you absolutely must appreciate that. How do you prepare so well for directing the show? And in addition to that, where do you work on your choreography? Do you have a studio or something, (laughs) or do you do it in your basement? I do it in my living room, and most things go... Kind of like chorus line. I used to dance around the living room. Yeah, but most of my stuff has to go in a counterclockwise move because that's where my coffee table is. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, there's a signature move then. I see. Sometimes I will go to the theater and use the studio, but I do a lot. You're going to laugh, but I do a lot of choreography in the car because I have these tremendously long commutes to get to theaters. And so I just play the music over and over again. And by the time I get to where I'm going, I have at least a rough sketch of what I think it's going to be. And then I just have to get up and actualize it so that to see what the steps need to be but i know what i want the feeling of it to be and i know what i want the shapes and patterns of it to be and what the storytelling is cuz that's everything to me is what's the story you're telling steps are secondary stories everything and in terms of being prepared i would get swallowed if i weren't prepared i mean you can't do as many shows as i do and not stay on top of it because the amount of work that you're able to get done in the room is direct as a direct correlation to what you've prepared in the before the process, you know, and if I come in and go, hmm, what do we want to do today? I'm wasting valuable time. Our processes are very short in Chicago and you got to maximize every minute. So you got to have a good plan A and sometimes you have to have a good plan B and C going in too, because it may not always, the first idea may not always work. So I, I think it only behooves me to be extremely well prepared and also to know how to delegate to assistants and associates and dramaturgs and surround yourself with smartest people and say, I need this information from you. Can you get this for me? And they will. And then you can all collaborate together to make something that would be better if one person were the only person doing all of it. I think Mm -hmm. the older you get, the more you realize how much you need to delegate and how important your collaborators are and how much trusted, good collaborators who will call you on your stuff and sure. you know who don't sugarcoat it and and are really big fans of each other like everybody that I work with I'm such a huge fan of their work and we all have this mutual respect and more importantly we have an incredible love for the medium so it's always about what we could do that's cooler than what we did last time, right, right right you know and I think the most often asked question is wouldn't it be cool if we and then you fill in the blank or oh, oh how could we what could we how can we they have a great curiosity and also devotion to the craft and kind of an endless and tireless supply of creative ideas. Yeah, you directed a very well-received and highly acclaimed production of Brigadoon mm-hmm. at the Goodman Theater a couple of seasons ago. In terms of research, did you research Scottish dance? Were you totally immersed in that for quite a long time uh, before you kind of came up with your own style of how to interpret that? Absolutely, yes. And we were very concerned that, because quite honestly, the Scottish sword dance, it follows the same patterns over and over again. And that is beautiful, but it's not theatrical. So we needed to figure out a way to take the things that were true about the form and then break them apart so that they could serve the storytelling and also support the growth of the music symphonically. And we were so worried that we were going to hear from Scottish dance groups and we had so many of them come and they loved it. Oh, fantastic. They were really supportive of it. But I always do that when it's a form of dance that I am not trained in. When I did it, when I did King and I, I went to the Thai Cultural Center for six months and went to dance class with 10-year-old girls, you know, and stretched my wrists and my ankles, you Mm -hmm, know, and mm -hmm. tried to absorb every bit about the storytelling and the traditions from the people whose culture it is, because you can't, you can't fake those things. You have to honor, you have to honor the, the cultural traditions and you, and you need to educate yourself. 
one of the best parts of my job is getting to learn all of these things. And sometimes you go on and continue to learn them even after the show's over because they're so fascinating. Yeah, Charlie Newell has talked about uh, on the show having this endless curiosity about the world and about process, not just the actor's process, but the process of of learning and absorbing knowledge. And it's it's one of the most rewarding things in his entire life. Period Styles was my absolute favorite class in college. And it's about the history of culture and style and everything from the very beginning of time all the way up to the present. And I just, I could not get enough of that class. It was so fascinating to me Um, and I love looking at our world in a historical way and and seeing what we've learned from the history and more importantly what we haven't learned from our history and it's just Mm -hmm. it's just a fascinating you're such a student when you're a director because you're so busy I'm curious as to what you may do uh, for relaxation in your downtime do you have any hobbies (laughs) Uh, yes I cook you cook I cook yeah if I weren't doing this I would do that that's what I would do for for my living. I love it. It's you mean you'd be a professional yes, chef? You'd yes. have a restaurant or something? I don't or? know if I would have a restaurant. I mean, I, I don't know. But I, I was a line cook in the early 90s when I got here. I oh, just, yeah? Yeah. Where? where? Can you tell us yeah, where? Yeah, there was a catering company called Callahan Godoff that was in the city. Uh-huh. And it was me and, like, one other girl in the kitchen and I would do special events like they 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 had a full staff but I would do specialty events and catering events and then I got to do things like the food marketing institute at um, McCormick place because I was a a person that could speak and so they put me out on the floor to do cooking demos and I used to get to do all of the Bon Appetit magazine demos and I would talk to the um, food editor Christine Kidd she said so what do you do when you're not doing this and I said well I'm a choreographer and she said oh yeah my dad's a choreographer and I said who's your dad and she said Michael Kidd <laughs> said, oh yeah, yeah. He's he's. I've heard good. of him. He's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, even in that part of my life, there were always. <laughs> wow. Yeah, fun coincidence. Well, should you pursue any other sort of handicrafts as a as a hobby? I, I, I wanted to mention something. Amy Poehler and her uh, Paper Kite Production Company is uh, forming an unscripted TV show called The Handmade Project. I don't know if that's a take on The Handmaid's Tale or what. It's a competitive reality show, and she's doing this with Nick Offerman. Uh-huh. Yeah, so each week, eight all-around makers, these are craftspeople from all walks of life, they'll take on a series of projects with the hopes of impressing Amy and, and Nick and, and a panel of some expert judges. And over the course of each episode, the contestants will tackle a different theme, hand-making items of different disciplines, you mm-hmm. know. I imagine it's more than just gluing popsicle sticks into buildings. They'll probably do looming and Uh and things like that. But uh, Polar is a uh, self-proclaimed crafting novice who has long harbored a secret appreciation for those who can imagine and execute incredible things by hand. And of course, Nick Offerman is a best-selling author in the woodworking section. He is the owner of Offerman Woodshop in Los Angeles and well-known for his love of making a variety of objects. I throw this out to the people who... uh, are listening so that they can possibly go to the handmadeprojectcasting.com. That's handmadeprojectcasting.com if you want to apply. Marguerite Fox, if you're listening, she's uh, an obituary writer for the New York Times. She was a guest on our show a couple of years ago. She might want to apply for this. Uh, Marguerite, if you're listening, she spins her own yarn on a wheel in her home in New nice. York. Yeah. And she posts these things on Facebook. She posts pictures of, of her more, most recent yarn spinning uh, on, on Facebook, and it's just fantastic. I'm not a, I'm, I don't do that, but I'm a stitcher. I, there's not a curtain in our house that I didn't make. Really? <laughs> yeah, from costume shop practicum. I was in the costume shop for sure. all these years, and if I could draw, that would be something I would pursue too, is costume design, because I'm fascinated by it. But alas... I don't have as much time to do any kind of crafts as I used to. And it I really sounds, like it. it sounds like, well, yeah. you know, if, if you keep your hand in someday, yeah. you'll find a little more time. That would be great. We talked about your son a little bit. I just wanted to mention Jake. Yeah. Uh, he's 12 and you homeschool him. Uh, your father homeschools him. As of, yeah, as of this year, Ooh. because 
we were traveling so much. I was in San Diego at the Old Globe, and we were in um, Minneapolis at the Children's Theater Company, and in New York at MCC. So we were traveling all over, and I'm not going to be away from him for that long. So we decided that we would take him on the road with us and let this be a year of kind of travel and study, and he's loving it, just loves it. He's doing great with his curriculum, and he's trying to balance his school with being in the show now, so it it requires some discipline, and he's getting to see some amazing things in our country that he would otherwise not get to see sitting in a classroom. Now, does he... Or is he developing the theater bug? I know that he appears in Shakespeare in Love as one of the actors, yes. and he's quite good. I, 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 was that him on opening night? Yes, that was him. Well, he was he was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Does he have the bug? I think he he enjoys it, but he certainly doesn't sit around and ask me to go audition for things. Like he really doesn't. He's you know the most selective twelve year old on the planet. But he's a musician, he's a drummer and a ukulele player, really, really proficient and very good. He's into computers and and gaming, and every time we go to the Genius Bar, they ask when he wants a job. I mean, he's really, really, (laughs) really good at it. Hiring geniuses apply here. Yeah. (laughs) And your husband is also in the business. He's a uh, sound designer. Yes, he is. He's a Tony-nominated sound designer from Pippin. On Broadway, the last year that they had that category, but now it's kind of back. Thank goodness, it's kind of back. It's kind of back. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and this is a good segue because uh, right around this time of year uh, on this podcast, we like to talk about the Tony nominations mm-hmm. that have just come out. I don't know if you've seen much on Broadway this season. Do I've you go some. to New York a lot? I do, yes. I've, I've seen some things. I just saw Come From Away the other night, which I loved. It was really delightful. In the old days when we had Roscoe around on a regular basis, we would then go through the nominations and pick our favorites, mm-hmm. and, and then we'd uh, test ourselves in June. But I just wanted to go through some of the nominations here and maybe get your take on one or two. For Best Musical this year, Come From Away, as you mentioned, uh, Dear Evan Hansen, a very quirky, odd musical. Groundhog Day, which uh, surprised me a little bit, but... There you are. And Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Have you seen that show? No, I only saw, of those four, I've only seen Come From Away. So I don't know how qualified I am to speak to them. But what I did love about Come From Away is that it is all about the story. There's no pyrotechnics. There's nothing but a story about people, not to disrespect anyone, but no television stars in the show. It is a bunch of really wonderful actors telling a really beautiful story that is really healing for a lot of people. And it just relies on that and, and nothing more. And so I'm really, I'm really a big fan of, of that. Tell us just briefly for our listeners what the plot of Come From Away is. Well, after 9-11, planes were diverted because airports were closed and they were diverted to Gander, Newfoundland. And all of these people, there were thousands of people coming into Gander and the people in the town took these people in. And small went, town. Small town, tiny. But it had a huge airport. Big, big runway. Yeah. Yes. And so all these planes came and all of these people in Gander took in these strangers and fed them and clothed them and consoled them and gave them a place to be until they were able to fly again. And, and they did it with, it was just such grace and humanity. That's something that we are we are unfortunately lacking a little bit right now. So it was lovely to hear a story that, that embraces those values. Yeah, not not typical fodder for a musical, no, but, but it's charming it and apparently funny. works beautifully. Yes, and, and very moving. A best book of a musical, and this is not surprising. It's the same four musicals that are nominated for best musical, mm-hmm. and that makes sense. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you have a good book, yeah. you're probably going to have a good show. Yeah. Uh, again, Come From Away, Dear Evan Hansen, Groundhog Day, and Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. I may just shorten that to Natasha and Pierre <laughs> from now on. I wanted to mention Best Play. 
A Doll's House Part 2. Now, we've made a little fun of A Doll's House Part 2 on this show, the Lucas Nath play, before it opened, because it's just such a weird title and a weird idea for a show. Laurie Metcalf's in the show, Chris Cooper's in the show, and they've all been nominated for their roles, uh, including the supporting actors. Jane Houdeschel is in it. Best play is A, a Doll's House Part 2, Indecent, Oslo, and Sweat. Mm-hmm. And that should be a very interesting category. Revival of a musical, not surprisingly, Hello, Dolly is in there, along with Miss Saigon and Falsettos. I think the reviews on Hello, Dolly probably have that wrapped up. I'm not sure. I'm just guessing. pretty great. And to see Bette Midler do what Bette Midler does so beautifully yeah. with that score and that story would be really, really We had exciting. a friend uh, recently who uh, called to try to get a ticket for say like a Wednesday night show at the end of June and wanted a decent main floor orchestra seating. They quoted her $1,200. Yeah. yeah, they're doing okay. They're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> a revival of a play. Happy to see that Little Foxes got nominated. We've Such talked about Little Foxes play. on this show quite yeah. a bit because it's got this uh, idea that uh, Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon switch roles uh, every other night from um, Bertie and Regina. And what's interesting is that Laura Linney got nominated in the leading actor part for Regina, and Cynthia Nixon got nominated in the featured actor part for her performance as Bertie. And by all accounts, that's the best way to see it. (laughs) Well, they're both really phenomenal actors, so it's great that they didn't cancel each other out in the nominations. Yeah, leading actors in a play include Chris Cooper, who I mentioned earlier in A Doll's House Part Two, Kevin Kline in uh, Present Laughter, and Jefferson Mays Mm -hmm. in Oslo. No surprise there. Leading actresses in a play, Kate Blanchett once again. Uh, Sally Field. Yay, Sally. Laura Linney, as I mentioned, and Laurie Medcalf in A Doll's House Part 2, one of four acting nominations for that show. Actors in a musical, Christian Borel in Falsettos, Mm -hmm. Josh Groban in Natasha and Pierre, Andy Carl in Groundhog Day. Now, the reviews for him were A Star is Born, essentially. David Hyde Pierce in Hello, Dolly. And uh, Ben Platt in Dear Evan Hansen. That's a tough category. Those are all fine, fine actors. And I'll just mention the leading actresses in a musical, uh, Danae Benton and Natasha and Pierre, Christine Ebersole and Patti LuPone, both in War Paint. Let's see if they'll duke it out. <laughs> Maybe we'll have a cat fight on stage. And Bette Midler in Hello, Dolly, as well as Eva Noblezada uh, from Miss Saigon. I got to figure Bet has the inside track on that. Christine and Patty might cancel each other out. So we're looking forward to the Tony Awards, which is on June 11th on CBS. Not that I'm plugging CBS. Let me ask you, Rachel, we've talked a little bit about some choreographers and directors. Who are your idols? Who have you drawn inspiration from? Oh, I think a lot of them are teachers and mentors. I was really lucky to get to watch a little bit of work by Hal Prince when I was in Showboat, and that was pretty great school. really fascinating and also quite honestly producer Garth Drabinsky even though we know there were issues there the art that was he's back he is back and I'm I'm glad of it yeah me too art that he made was was some of the most beautiful satisfying um stuff that I think we've seen in a long long time and I'm a, a really big fan of Susan Stroman's kind of classic stuff that she does with props and building choreography. She's really wonderful at that. And, you know, then there are Fosse and Bennett and those people who kind of laid a foundation for everything that we do. I'm also a big fan of Stephen Hoggett because I'm a musical stager as much as a choreographer. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate mm-hmm. um, how he takes the human experience and kind of elevates it, um, but keeps it grounded. And he's he's quite, quite good. Somebody that I really admire. You've done dozens of shows, um, mostly musicals. Uh, are there uh, a couple of shows that you are dying to do that you haven't yet gotten the opportunity to do? Um, I guess I'm asking, what are your favorites? I don't have a short list because I've gotten to do The Sound of Music and Ragtime and Miss Saigon and um, Billy Elliot. And so people have to kind of come to me with ideas at this point. And I don't sit around thinking about it in part because I'm busy 
And, you know, somebody will bring something up and I'll go, oh, yeah, I never really thought of that show. Okay, great. Well, let me see if I have a point of view on it. And if I do, then we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. But I seem to only get the monsters. I don't get the two people, the two handers <laughs> at all. <laughs> I I, it's got to be like, it's 20 plus or nothing. And it seems like that's kind of what comes across my desk these days. But yeah. I like it. And I like working with children. And, and Yeah, your work with children has been well acclaimed. You mentioned that you did some work in the children's theater company up in Minneapolis. Yes, I did the world premiere of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, the musical, which was a <laughs> blast. <laughs> it's such a great piece. And it's such you a you know, that's based on my family. that's based on my childhood. <laughs> I think you'd have to get in line on that. A lot yeah. of people wanna wanna um, claim credit for that. But it was such a fun show to do because it's it's a true family show. It's not a children's show, it's a family show. And it was so much fun to get to work with kids that are the age of my kid and do something for my son's age, although it's for everybody. It's it's yeah. you know, it really resonates with, with middle school age and a little younger. It was just a great time. And Children's Theater Company is an incredible place to work and create art. They are such incredible artists, and they're so committed and devoted to their mission of bringing quality family theater. I, I kind of felt like I found my people a little bit. Yeah, I lived in St. Paul, Minnesota for a couple of years, and I had the opportunity to stage manage a show at Children's Theater Company, and we did Mr. Popper's Penguins, oh, a yes. stage adaptation. Yes. and. The detail and work that went into that organization building appropriate penguin costumes Seriously. for seven kids of different uh -huh. sizes yeah. was awe-inspiring. They're very committed to every detail, and that's what makes them so unique. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that almost all of their department heads are women. And that's really great, including their technical director and production manager. So that was really, that was really great. It was really fun to get to work with a, a group of um, wonderful, strong women under the guidance of Peter Brocious, their um, amazing artistic director, who has created that culture of yes and that incredible devotion to the art of family theater. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a wonderful place to work and a wonderful place to see a show. Absolutely. They have a beautiful theater, a beautiful facility. I can't speak more highly of them. I also worked at Chicago Children's Theater with, with Jackie Russell, and I, uh, they, they produced my show that I wrote with Michael Mahler called Wonderland, Alice's Rock and Roll Adventure. And it was so, it was, again, an incredible organization that is serving the children and families of Chicago in an amazing way, and I'm so happy that that they now have a permanent artistic home so that they can continue to develop their programs like the Red Kite program, which brings children that are on the autism spectrum to a, a welcoming environment where they can experience art on their own terms and, and bringing productions to visually challenged and hearing challenged children. Some of the most fulfilling things I've ever mm. done was, was watching those per performances and seeing how the kids were impacted by it. You're known in your performance career as a triple threat uh, actress, singer, dancer. Do you miss performing? Do you want to get back to it? People ask every once in a while, but I, I just I don't have time um, in my schedule. Yeah. And I don't miss it, honestly. The only thing I miss, to be really frank, is choral music rehearsal. Like the first day of a musical when everybody is in their parts, sitting alto, soprano, tenor, baritone, and, and singing the first time that you all make music together is I miss that. I loved that. I just loved that. And that wasn't being a soloist. That was being a part of a, a collective and lending your voice to a collective. I miss that part of it. I miss being a part of an ensemble. Like I, I love that. And I still have that, but I don't have to pull it up eight shows a week. Right. And I don't have to dance so hard. I mean, right. That was the thing. It was, you know, all the roles I played were soubrette roles and you're constantly uh, in class and working hard and not eating and in pain all the time. So it's <laughs> it, was, it had its rewards, but it definitely had its challenges. So glamorous, yes, isn't it? very, very. Oh, yeah. wow. You roll out yeah. of bed in the morning and you're like, whoa, it's be, be a long one. <laughs> Rachel, sometimes we play a little parlor game with our guests called 
chat pack. Now, these are questions that have been provided by my producer, and I don't know what they are. And I and they're really kind of meant to kind of get a bit more personal take okay. on our guests and myself. <laughs> and I'm happy to play along, too. We'll both answer. I wonder if you'd be game for this. Sure. Fantastic. I, I have I a... No. Wouldn't that be terrible? You, you could say no. <laughs> and then uh, and then I'd just cut that. And, and I'd, I'd coerce you into it, and then we'd come back on the air. Uh, I'm going to hold these cards and have you pick one and read it out loud for us. Um, What was your favorite thing to pretend when you were a young child? Um, Director of a musical. No. Yeah, I directed musicals my whole life, starting at about, I don't know, maybe four or five in my living room. I would take the soundtrack to whatever Broadway show was most current, and then I would choreograph and direct the show and sometimes I would direct the neighborhood kids in things and that and they loved that let me tell you I'm being really sarcastic right now <laughs> like they really loved it they were like why, why are we doing this did I you show this to their parents then did you have really no it was just a perpetual rehearsal process like we never got out I'm, I'm, even then I was all about process we never got out we never really ever got to the performance but even yeah I was choreographing my own dance recital numbers and our teacher was sweet enough to let us do them it made the dance recital interminable but because we all wanted to do one but yeah so that was my that was the thing that I pretended do you remember a particular um, show from your childhood that you uh, choreographed and directed with your neighborhood kids yeah Chicago because that's appropriate yes wow yeah and and many numbers from a chorus he had it coming yeah where I you know would (laughs) sing the lyrics wrong locked in the bathroom with paper plates was a big one yeah instead of Peyton Place because I had no idea what it was um but because <laughs> <laughs> locked in the bathroom with paper plates makes a lot of I sense know. too I was six you, you know? were six yeah. what could you do I know. It, it's funny mine's is along the kind of the same lines I and a friend and a couple of friends just from across the street we would direct movies <laughs> We would actually act out a whole movie. Usually it had some sort of either war theme. We were army men or we were black ops guys. Uh, sometimes it was a Western, but it always involved shooting people and things. Oh, yeah. And But we'd narrate the film as we kind of acted it out around our house and totally. crawling through bushes and stuff. Yes, I remember being Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker with my brother and breaking my canopy bed as we tried to swing across the gorge in the original Star Wars movie. It was really well received by my parents. I believe that's what I happened bro- on the first take uh, yeah, in the yeah. actual film. I, I they broke, broke the my, thing. My Sears French Provincial canopy bed <laughs> that I thought was so pretty. It was so beautiful. My princess bed. Yeah. Uh, would you uh, care to play another with sure. me? Fantastic. <laughs> okay. If you could take any job for just one month, what job would you like to have? Assume that you would have the skills and knowledge to perform adequately. Oh, gosh. This is kind of like asking if you weren't doing theater or hadn't had a great career, what what else might you have liked to have done? But uh, this is even better. If yeah. you could just give this up for a month and do something. I'm fascinated by the law. I think I would be an attorney, a litigator. I, I think that would be something I would want to do. Like criminal law, like murder cases Probably, or things yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, you'd be you'd be excellent at it. Have you ever taken any classes in talking in a in a courtroom or? Um, no, I actually my ex husband was a lawyer, and I did a lot of prep work with him on cases, and I also went and did some trial, acted in some trial cases, you know, because they let the law students work work it out on actors. <laughs> oh, so you were, an, you were an actor uh, uh-huh. witness? Or uh-huh. you, oh, yeah, I was interesting. pretty tough, actually. Like moot court, uh-huh. yes? Yeah. You were, and you were a tough witness. I was a really tough I witness. I bet you would be. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's do one okay. more. What is your all-time favorite scene from a movie? Oh, my gosh. Well, when they say all time, and let's let's not put too much pressure on it. If yeah. you, if you have several, and it can be different tomorrow. I love the opening segment of Amadeus when Salieri's tried to kill himself, and they are carrying him through the streets in the stretcher to this wonderful Mozart music, and there's this juxtaposition of him in this agony, looking at all of the balls and the people 
in the town living their lives and hearing this beautiful Mozart music. And I love, I've always loved that scene. I'm going to totally bust myself here. This is so cheesy. But I love the scene in Working Girl where she takes the ferry over and sees the skyline of New York. I really do. I love it. You're yeah. talking about Melanie Griffith in, yeah. the, in the Mike Nichols film. Yes. That is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful scene. That does, that, you're not busted. Okay. That's, that's right. a All wonderful, right. wonderful scene. I think maybe one of my favorite scenes is the transition in uh, Lawrence of Arabia near the beginning of the film where uh, Peter O'Toole has been given permission to go off into Arabia and, and he holds up a match he rolls up his sleeve and he lets the match burn down towards his fingers and the camera zooms in on the match lit flame. And then you hear, and the scene cuts and you're, you're looking at just a blank canvas of desert. And you hear those tiny, tiny, tiny little first strains of the famous Lawrence of Arabia uh, music sort of begin underneath little zither sounds. Mm-hmm. I, that always gives me chills, and I had the great pleasure of seeing it on the big screen not too long ago, oh, yes. on the really yeah. big screen, and it's even even better. Well, that was a great chat pack. <laughs> you were marvelous at that, and uh, I appreciate it. We usually end our podcasts with a segment called The Kiss of Death. It's always a celebration of someone's life that has just passed recently. Many times it's someone very obscure. Uh, Sometimes it could be the guy who invented the pink lawn flamingo, which we've done. Today I want to talk about something special, though. Martha Levy passed away just last week. Martha Levy, who took over as artistic director of Steppenwolf in Chicago in 1995, and over the next 20 years or so, uh, made it a showcase for acclaimed productions and an incubator for new plays and young playwrights. She passed away. She was 60. Did you know Martha? I did. I did. She was brilliant and formidable and somebody that I considered uh, a mentor, even though we didn't work together much. I I choreographed two plays that Martha was in at Steppenwolf, Up and Lost Land. And I believe that Martha's whole feeling about me was that I was simply there to torture her with dancing. (laughs) She hated it so much. Really? And and by proxy hated me. Um, I mean, she was like... I. I'm never going to get this. I don't, I don't even, I mean, I was like, wait, I'm only here because you guys asked me to be here. Yeah. But she really, really, really hated it. She would do it begrudgingly, but she really, really resented it. But I always loved her frankness. I always knew where I stood with her and she was kind of one of a kind and she will be so unbelievably missed in our artistic community. Martha was an actress by training. And a brilliant um, actress. And she appeared in more than 30 productions at Steppenwolf, where she became an ensemble member in 1993. It was a period of transition in 95 when she uh, became the artistic director. Uh, some of the brilliant talents who established the theater in the 1970s, like John Malkovich, Gary Sinise, uh, the aforementioned Laurie Metcalf, among them, had they'd gone on to other careers in film and television. So uh, Martha got off to a flying start, however. Uh, one of the first productions on her watch was a revival of Sam Shepard's Buried Child. That's a wonderful play. It later opened on Broadway, and soon after she lured John Malkovich back to the theater to take a leading role in uh, Stephen Jeffrey's play, The Libertine. Looking forward, she commissioned new plays. She brought up up-and-coming playwrights like Tracy Letts. I was actually at the Tonys the year that they won for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And it was so great to see Martha accept that award on behalf of that incredible company of Chicago actors. Tracy Letts won Best uh, Performance by an Actor in a Play of that year. Other playwrights that she fostered are are Terrell Alvin McCraney, who wrote a play called In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, Mm -hmm. which is adapted for the film Moonlight. Moonlight, 
uh, Academy Award winner. And Bruce Norris, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Clybourne uh, Park uh, playwright. Uh, and she created new workshops and experimental performance spaces. Did you direct anything upstairs there no. at Steppenwolf ever? No. I don't think Martha even knew I was a director. She only knew me as the dance girl who was there to torture her. <laughs> Seriously. And I kind of loved that that was our relationship. I never felt the need to illuminate. I just thought, okay, this is what this is our this is our relationship and that's fine by me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> during, well, during uh, Miss Levy's tenure, Steppenwolf presented a long list of uh, critically praised productions. Uh, several transferred to Broadway, winning nine Tonys. Um, the theater's restagings of Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, as you mentioned, Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf both won Tonys for Best Revival of a Play. Steppenwolf's production of Mr. Letts' Superior Donuts opened on Broadway in 2009 and uh, has been developed into a television series on, on CBS. I'm plugging CBS today for some reason. <laughs> I sure hope they come across with some dough. I'm looking over at our producer right now because I, I, I can't keep mentioning CBS. Martha Ann Levy was born um, on February 20th in 1957 in Lawrence, Kansas, where her father, Robert, was a graduate student at the University of Kansas and was later recruited, I don't know if you know this, was later recruited by the CIA as a Russian specialist. Huh. And when Martha was 11, the family moved to Detroit. She attended Immaculata High School, where her sights already set on an acting career. She appeared as Annie Sullivan in The Miracle Worker. I can see that. Oh, I, bet she was great. I could see that performance, even though it was in <laughs> high school. I can see Martha doing that. Yeah. Uh, she studied drama at Northwestern University right here in uh, Evanston, Illinois. She enrolled in acting classes taught by Mr. Malkovich, uh, who cast her as a Brazilian Indian uh, in Christopher Hampton's Savages at Steppenwolf when he was directing there. Miss Levy returned to Northwestern for a master's degree and a doctorate in performance studies. A great teacher and director and a, a great man of the arts, uh, Frank Galati, one of her teachers, cast her in her breakthrough role as a fragile recluse in Wallace Shawn's Aunt Dan and Lemon. Mm -hmm. uh, also a beautiful play, the I role think. role that I actually played as well. No kidding. Yeah. That's a, it's not done often, but I not love done that often. play. I love that play. Hetty Weiss in the Chicago Sun-Times, writing back in 1987 about this performance, says, The exquisitely beautiful lady with her flawless hypnotic diction and dreamy grace, I wish someone would say that about me, captures the girl's ghostly quality, turning her into a kind of cracked porcelain doll. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, Galati said, in addition to her remarkable physical beauty, to the pure, luminous symmetry of her form and face and her wonderfully lively eyes, there was her strong, distinctive, wide-ranging voice, and then there was the knockout punch. And I've heard this from so many people. Her intellect and her stunning capacity for analysis and her drive to understand things on the deepest level. So many uh, tributes to her on the interweb <laughs> and on Facebook, many of them have commented on her towering, towering intellect and need for seeking more knowledge mm -hmm. and curiosity about everything. Uh, did you find that to be true in absolutely. the times that you knew her? Yeah, absolutely. And because I was the dance girl, I wasn't in those conversations, but I was listening to those conversations. Yeah. And it was fascinating. The first play I did with her was she and John Malkovich were both in it. And so to listen to them go back and forth and Jan Barford, I mean, it was an amazing cast. Um, Katrina Lenk, who I believe is nominated for a Tony this season, it was fascinating to listen to these kind of longtime artistic peers talk and, and, and strive for deeper knowledge always. Yeah, she definitely had and showed her passion without any reservations. Uh, Tracy Letts uh, recently told the Chicago Sun-Times that he went to her with August Osage County before I had written it, he said. And I told her, listen, I have a three-act, three-and-a-half-hour play with 13 characters in it, and there's a three-story set. And she said, great, yeah. go write it. Do it. We'll do it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Under Ms. Levy's leadership, Steppenwolf doubled the size of the ensemble, opened the Garage Theater, presenting works by small theater companies around the city. That, that's that been a great, great initiative and uh, shown uh, that showcasing small Chicago theaters is 
helpful to all theaters. Yeah. She realized that collaboration in the community was very, very key. She created the experimental series for the Studio Theater, a former rehearsal hall, as I mentioned, and uh, renamed it Steppenwolf Upstairs. I'll just do a couple other of her astounding achievements, creating the Steppenwolf for Young Adults uh, series serving the public schools with plays aimed at teenagers, the school at Steppenwolf, which offers training residencies, and something called First Look Repertory of New Work, a program presenting new plays in development. Ms. Levy stepped down as artistic director in 2015, shortly after two of her productions, um, Airline Highway and Kenneth Lonergan's This Is Our Youth, made the leap to Broadway. Finally, in a statement uh, released Tuesday, Steppenwolf current artistic director Anna Shapiro and executive director David Schmitz noted, we were all indelibly impacted by Martha's passion, commitment, vision, and here it is again, unmatched intellect. Uh, Martha cared deeply for each and every one of us. No matter our relationship to her or the theater, she will be dearly missed. She will be dearly missed by a lot of people around the world. Uh, she was quite the uh, mover, shaker, and one of the more extraordinary people uh, to come across the uh, Chicago theater scene. Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, you are um, a spectacular talent. I look forward to seeing the next thing. What are you working on uh, now? What's your next project? Can you tell us? Yeah, I'm actually working on a new musical adaptation of um, Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. Really? Yeah, at the Delaware Theatre Company, which will be really, really fun. And then I'm going to the Oslo Theatre to do another Shakespeare in Love, which is great because I love it, so I'm excited to spend some more time with it. And you say this uh, something wicked is a new musical, musical, original musical? Yes, by Neil Bartram, who wrote this new score for Shakespeare in Love, and Brian Hill, um, two of my favorite collaborators. Wonderful. Well, good luck with that. You say it's in Delaware? Yes, Delaware Theatre Company. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on Booth One. We do so appreciate it. Good luck with your career. I can't wait to see the next thing, and I maybe I'll come out to Delaware to see that. I'm a great Ray Bradbury fan. Ladies and gentlemen, you can uh, like us on uh, Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And as always, you can give us your comments, feedback, questions, uh, anything that you'd like by uh, emailing me at gary at booth-one.com. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski saying uh, so long and keep listening. Keep listening.